Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yance, and today my guest is Seth Greenkey. He is the president of Greenkey Management. He is a record producer, a musician, and a personal manager. This is part one. Enjoy. Okay. Um, I have a guest today with me. I have Seth Greenkey of Greenkey Management. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So am I to understand you, you grew up in Long Island. That's where you grew up. Uh, no, I was brought up on Long Island and I grew up when I left. <laughs> Were you intrigued by show business as a kid? Uh, not show business per se. My, my interests were just gut instinct music. I was begging for a piano from the time I was three. And I knew as a three-year-old, my mom wasn't going to take me seriously unless I really pressed the point. I was very self-aware as a three, three and a half year old. So I said, I have to convince her I really want a piano. So the first thing I said to her in the morning when she got me up was, mommy, I want a piano. And the last thing I said to her at night when she put me to bed was, mommy, I want a piano. I did this every day for four years. Finally, at the age of seven and a half, I got a piano. And uh, by the time I was 12, I was playing eight instruments pretty proficiently. Did you pick it up like by ear or were you somebody had that lessons. had to be trained? You had lessons? I had, I had lessons, yeah. I think my inspiration was my grandfather. And uh, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a baby grand piano over here. Oh, wow. And that was my grandfather's. Oh, that's so and cool. I, see, I, I play to, the piano as well, okay. so I so I can relate. <laughs> I used to sit underneath the piano when he'd play. He was a first violin for the Buffalo Symphony Orchestra. He wow. was a he was a pretty good musician. He was just strictly an amateur. Wow. So did you was you played other instruments? Was that just were you able to pick them up faster after I, I picked the piano? them up pretty quickly, would kick off my, my best friend in college because they never played flute before and he'd been struggling you know for years trying to get the right sound and i never played woodwind mm. so i picked up his flute and inside of five minutes i was getting the tone he'd been seeking for years he's, he's never let me live that down so i just had a natural wow. propensity for music yeah so how all right so then that so then you go to monmouth uh university is monmouth. that where you, monmouth excuse monmouth, me yeah. monmouth I, I tried to find the pronunciation like i couldn't find it Dar there you go monmouth yeah. so is that kind of where you started to become serious with music or had that already happened oh i was playing in bands from the time i was 15 16. so what what were the inspirations uh, well, as I said, my grandfather was a, a great inspiration mm. without him trying, without me really realizing. And it wasn't until, you know, years later, I said, I guess I was influenced. But I, it was just inherent. I just had an inherent need, desire to play music. Wow. And then uh, I, got, I, I joined, uh, you know, a band in high school. And then I joined another band and we played at beach clubs on Long Island during the yeah. summer and uh, we then i joined another band we we played you know if friends were having a party we'd get hired sometimes we played for the school and mm. uh then uh, i without knowing anything about the cat skills and i know a lot of the audience may not know what the cat skills are or were i was it's funny for a jewish boy from long island i didn't know from the cat skills 
I just knew mm. books on Long Island. But um, my one of my amplifiers needed a tube, the old-fashioned tubes. I've got my old uh, Fender basement top sitting over there. So I needed a tube. My dad uh, would sometimes work. He was a salesman, and he would go visit people. And he was up in the Bronx, where he was from, at an electronics store to pick up a tube for my amp. And he saw a sign on the wall that said, organ player wanted summer job. So he brought home the sign. I called the number, complete stranger. And they asked me uh, if I, you know, if I played organ. And I said, yes, because I said organ player needed. I said, yeah. He said, I said, what are you doing this weekend? I said, nothing. You want to come audition with us up in the Catskills? I said, okay. So uh, on uh, Friday afternoon or Saturday, it was just at the end of the school year before the summer season started up in the resorts, that uh, these three strangers came down from the Bronx, drove down from the Bronx to Freeport, Long Island. Guy came up, uh, the the drummer owned the car. He was the oldest guy in the group. He was 19, so he was the mature one. And he had the souped-up 1956 old 98. With an engine and everything. So they pulled up. And I had all my, I had the, my Farfisa organ and uh, it was a single compact. It wasn't until the next year that they got the bigger one. I had a single compact and I played, they needed a bass player. So I played bass with my left hand with the black units that they had on it. And um, we loaded all our equipment in the car and they, they already had their equipment in the car and they also brought an extra passenger a girl named Wendy, with whom I'm friends again through Facebook. But when I met her, she was uh, she was sitting in the back seat, and there was no room for me in the back seat. But I had to get in the back seat. There were cymbals and their guitar cases running past us, and we were all squeezed in. The drums were taking up most of the the trunks. Other the guitar players, the amp was back there, and there just wasn't a lot of room. And we were squeezed. Had to like push the door and kind of like made us introduce ourselves to each other, you might say. Wendy and I in the back seat, <laughs> Bill, Danny, and Steve in the front seat. And we'd never played before. We'd never rehearsed before. So after we started on the road, Phil took out his Fender Stratocaster and from the case, and he started playing acoustically. So we started going over songs we knew in common so that when we go up there to rehearse, to audition, we knew what songs we might be able to play. So yeah. Phil's playing it acoustically, and then Danny starts to sing, and my jaw dropped open. And the other two guys go, uh-huh. He was known as the Golden Voice Putz. Sorry, Danny. Mm-hmm. He had an incredible voice. He went to the High School of Music and Art, which later became Fame School, but it was known as the High School of Music and Art. And he could sing anything from opera to James Brown. And he could scream, and it wouldn't hurt his throat. And, go, and then he'd go back into opera or standards. He just had a he was had a gift. He still performs to this day. Wow. And uh, and uh, so we started practicing harmonies. And being the one who knows knew the most about music theory, other than Danny, I was teaching the other guys harmony parts. Then we started harmonizing. We were doing songs from a group called the Bo Brummels and uh, Cry Just a Little, which has four-part harmony in it. So we're rehearsing as we're driving up. And then we get up to this small hotel called the Fieldston where we're going to audition the next day. 
And uh, so we, they gave us one room. So, and we had a girl in the car. So we had to draw straws. Who's going to sleep in the car? Because there were only three beds in the, in the bedroom. And there were five of us. And there was one double bed. So we had to draw straws. Well, Wendy, of course, gets a bed. So now it's the four of us going for two beds or two in the car. Fortunately, I won one of the beds. And uh, so Danny and Phil, uh, no, Steve and Phil are in the car. And the other th the three main mending were in the room. Danny starts to sing opera. As soon as the lights go out, he starts singing opera. So <laughs> the next day, next day we audition. We, 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 we get 10 minutes to practice. And we, so we set up our equipment before the owner of the hotel comes in and we start practicing. We, we immediately, we had an incredible blend. Was, we were more than the sum of our parts and that served us well for the next years. So then the owner came in, we had rehearsed a standard in case, you know, the old people wanted to hear standard. So we did a couple of, you know, we did Kansas City by Wilbur Harrison. We did another typical rock song that everybody knows. And then the guy said, that's a very nice voice. But can you do something a little nicer? So we launched into Kai Winding's more. And then Danny started to use his nice voice. Oh my God, what a beautiful voice. So, but we did get hired. But, but we did, we, we, were, we were asked to play uh, for a buffet that they were having outside. So we set up to play outside for the preseason guests that were there. And then it started to rain. And so we're all worried about getting shocks. So our guitar player had his hands on his strings and see this little puddle of water starting to work its way towards <laughs> where the mic stand was. <laughs> and it's like slow motion disaster film in progress. And then he goes, he touches his strings and sparks flew out from his fingers. The guitar goes up in the air. You can see like, End over end over end, the guitar uh, neck lands tilt first into this giant swan of uh, made out of chopped liver. It's, it's, it was a hysterical scene. <laughs> you had to be there. But if you can imagine this guitar player, guitar arcing through the air, landing <laughs> into a big swan of chopped liver, that was the scene. So, uh, we went and rehearsed in another, uh, we, re we returned to the Catskills. Our agent sent us up to another place. And uh, we ended mm -hmm. up getting a job at a place we never auditioned for. I, I mean, I could wow. go on for hours about my Catskills. Wow. But, so, uh, so how early was it till you, were you writing your own songs at this point? I started writing poems when I was four. I didn't know it was a thing. I started writing songs when I was eight or nine. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it was something you did. And it, it turns out that a great uncle of mine is a famous songwriter. I didn't know that till many years later. So it's just all kind of in the genes. So how do you get into now managing the band? Funny you should ask. It's funny. I'm, I'm in a Catskills mindset because I belong to a Catskills humor, nostalgia site. So sometimes I will fall into that. Of course, there's a lot of show business up there. That was the heart and soul of comedy, where today's mm -hmm. comics came from. Okay, so uh, I got involved with a small record company, uh, 
small record company in New York City at 1650 Broadway. Uh, they wanted to produce one of my songs that I had written. So I, si I signed a publishing deal with them, and they recorded it. And they used, they used the NBC Orchestra. They had this pretty good singer, but he was more like uh, Frankie Lane instead of being in the rock field. And the arrangement they used for him uh, and the tempo, they screwed it up. So I went to the mm -hmm. owner of the record company. I said, you guys screwed this up. I can do this better. So I got my old singer from my rock band. We sped the tape up. We were f lucky. It ended up in the right key with a better tempo. And I, that was the first time I produced a record. It may, have, it may have been the first time because I know I, produ I produced other stuff when I was still in college. I recruited a bunch of guys and drove them to New York City. And we went into a big recording studio there to do another one of my songs. But, uh, but then I eventually became vice president of this small record company. And I had an office up at 1650 Broadway. Well, when I was 21, I had my name in gold on the door. It was like very, I was very proud of that. And, and this then, is Bell Sound Studios, correct? No, this is this is uh, a couple of years before Bell Sound. This is a small record company at 1650 Broadway. Then, uh, yeah, I was still in college at that time. Bell Sound was after college. Hmm. I had I had and uh, I did college. I had a couple of summers where I played uh, music for a couple of summers in college. One was going back with the rock band, a much nicer hotel, where we won the Catskills Hotel. Uh, rock band, uh, Battle of the Bands, big deal. That was like the icing on the cake. And there's an hour story there, but we can move ahead. So if you want to get to Bell Sound, uh, okay. I've graduated. I lived in Jersey City for four months. I didn't like it. I moved into the city. And then I moved in with a girlfriend my parents didn't know about. And I had, I'm trying to make sure I'm getting the order right. Was I on the road first? I was on the road first. Uh, after college, I uh, was living with my girlfriend and we got a bun in the oven and I, we needed money. I was working as an apprentice record producer. I wasn't really making good money. So I answered an ad in the Village Voice for uh, somebody needed for a keyboardist, a keyboardist. And I went on the road with them. So I was able to make money to provide for the birth of bun. But I was on the road for a full year. We were never without... Uh, without work. We were always booked five weeks in advance. And then when I was finished with that, I lived in Nashville for a while. I was in Nashville music scene for a bit, but I was too rock and roll for Nashville. I went back to the, yeah, I went back to New York. And, um, and then, I, then that's, that's when I started at Bell Sound as a producer. And uh, I brought in a group, made a deal with the studio. They let me use the studio. I just had to pay for materials and pay $15 an hour to the engineer. So we spent about 100 hours producing an album. And with, you know, with uh, four people, five people in the group splitting the $15 an hour, it was not something we couldn't do. And I would go up to uh, uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, where they were based. And I go up there to rehearse them. And then we come back and record. Then we go back up there to rehearse and come back to New York to record. And so that's how I developed my relationship. I started my relationship. And then so, I became a, I'm sorry, but I, then I became a, you know, manager, so sales manager. 
but I also had free reign to use any one of their four studios after hours, which was playing the world. All right. So how was being at Bell Sound Studios? What, what was that? It was great. I had uh, recording engineers. I had uh, I, I went out to meet heads of record companies to, you know, show them the studio, make give them deals. So I got to know a lot of uh, bigger producers and uh, vice presidents of record companies and the A&R people who was they were people I wanted to know anyway. Mm-hmm. And I was I would sometimes bring them in, give them a tour of the studios. Bell Sound was a semi-legendary recording studio in New York back in the late 60s, 70s, and probably through through the mid-late 70s. We we were one of the top studios. I so I watched your um, performance on um the Joe Franklin show as well. Oh, you as did the not John King show. Yes, uh-huh. I did. What um and you sang the song "The Commuter." How did right. um? And you're talking about it in in the. I don't think it was that interview, but it was another interview where you talked about how you were, you were on the subway, and that's kind of how you came up with the song. And then you also sing the song "Looking in the Eyes for Love." I don't know if that's the name of the song, but I gathered Looking from the lyrics. In the eyes I, of love. Yeah, it's just a song I wrote, just a ballad I wrote. And yes, yeah, the commuter. Really, I like that. Thank you very much. And uh, The Commuter was uh, a song that was inspired by a sort of com- combination of two different people. I had met somebody on a bus when I was commuting from college to New York for the small record company. And then uh, he just, he was the kind of guy who would drink three martinis just for the trip home. And uh, he was an, a wealthy, to do, a, a well-to-do advertising exec who apparently didn't like commuting and didn't like his job. And I don't think he much cared for his wife and his kids, but that's what his life was. He just looked so cool. He sounds like the guy from Mad Men. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was years before. And uh, the, uh, and on the subway, there was just this guy, you know, salt and pepper hair, well-dressed, but he he looked like he was going to his funeral. He just said, look at this. And I just got the inspiration from that. How did you come up with a tune for the commuter? This comes. This, that just comes. There's no, there's no deciding it. It just, it, it just it, comes when you're sitting. Yeah, that the uh, that was it was not. It was more of a conscious effort to write the song. I, I was inspired, mm-hmm. but the most amazing automatic writing experience I ever had happened uh, when I was driving on the uh, Belt Parkway. And I was driving from uh, my parents' home, where I was taking care of it after they had passed away. And I was, you know, week. I'd make a weekly trip before my brother and I decided what we were going to do with the home. And I'd go home once a week to check on the mail. So on one of the trips back, and that has nothing to do with the inspiration. I was sitting. uh, I was driving in the car on the Bell Parkway at night, and I heard a song come on the radio and I was playing the radio. Then in the old days, before it was digital, you used to have a knob to turn to tune in. I heard another song coming over the radio. And this had never happened to me before and I don't think ever since. But I, I tried to tune it in. I realized that's not coming from the speaker on the radio. That's coming from up here, you know, back above my dome light. It was like it was coming mm-hmm. through the ceiling of the car 
and wafting its way and going into here. And I could, I could sort of see this, this yeah. like wispy line of smoke and energy. And I just started dictating or words were being dictated to me. And do you, do you know the game one hen, one hen, two ducks, one hen, two ducks, three squawking geese? I think I've one heard these. Ducks, three squawking geese. Yeah, it. It's a memory thing. And so, but the words were coming to me and I was trying to remember them as they were coming to me. Finally, it got to be so fast, I couldn't keep up with remembering it. And I was, so I reached into my glove compartment, pulled out a napkin and a pen, and I put the napkin on the dashboard and I'm trying to drive and I'm trying to write without looking because it's, it's being dictated to me. And yeah. finally, I had to pull off the road and just write as fast as I could someone's talking to me and telling me write this down and i i finished i finished it i rushed back got him i got him i continued on my way found the first parking spot i could pulled up in my car i didn't care where i parked ran up to the piano and i found the notes and the key chords to go with the words and the melody that i heard in my head it took me all of maybe 10 minutes the song was 95 percent finished then i went out back and reparked the car it turned out to be one of the best songs that ever written which you haven't heard but i haven't it was really why a, why have i not why have we not heard is it just that, not out? it's not it's not out it was never never released i try i tried to sell it a few times i i did i did not but it's a, a nice piano voice demo i did with a, a studio singer who i'm still friends with and she's still singing her name's diane garisto and she used to be a background singer for laura nero so she does Laura Nero tribute, tribute shows and she has her own band. So she's still singing. She's still at it. I also found that uh, you, you tell them this, this story on the show that you uh, helped write, I Know I'll Never Fall in Love Again. Oh, I yeah, well, I didn't help write it. it. I had a lawsuit because I believed it, I was ripped off. Eventually we came to uh, a settlement. It's, it's still a bitter memory. I was, it was just me up against this giant record company. Yeah. And we I, caught I uh, one of the, so anyway, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. And when I first yeah. heard it on the radio, that was funny. Now in retrospect, in its own way, not really funny. Ha ha. But they said, oh, good. There's a new record. It was uh, written by Manuel. So, oh, it's got to be good. It's produced by Ron Dante. Oh, that's got to be good. And it's Dionne Warwick. I always liked her. And before the song is one third of the way through, I'm singing along with it. Like I know it. But there was a, but like I said, there was a settlement. Finally, it took yeah, five no, years. No, I understand. It, it took five years. I understand. But, uh, anyway. it, was, it was interesting uh, on the, I think it was the, not the John King, the Joe Franklin one. That's the one where like he has you. He has you sing it, and then they put the camera on you, and they don't cut away or do anything. They just keep it on a close-up shot of it. And I'm like, we've come a long way from <laughs> from those days. Like nowadays, they would like cut around, you know, show the audience, show that it's just a st it's just a still shot. I'm just like, really? Wow. I'm just. I know. I I'd seen the show before. I mean, mm -hmm. who hadn't seen Joe Franklin back in those days? And I know when they mm -hmm. did that and someone had a, they just kept the camera on them and the person just sitting there. And how do you want, how do I not look like a douche? You know? <laughs> okay. So 
I figure, okay, if they do that to me, I'll, I'll just start the mouth the words just to be a little active, yeah. a little involved with it. So yeah, you pretty much described how it was. And then the John King one, you're, uh, when you come to sing, it's, <laughs> you can barely see anything. I'm like, yeah, the shooting it's up kind of, it's like, where is it? So yeah, no, I thought that was, um, but I thought I did a good job of lip syncing that. You did. You did. I, that's when you wrote that down there is like, is he lip syncing? I don't know. Yeah. I, you know? I, I, I practiced. You practiced. I, I got oh, it wow. down. I got it down pretty well before I got on the show. And the guy could not pronounce my name. I also learned that you also, you knew Bruce Springsteen before he was. Um, before he was big. Yeah. yeah, before he was big. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Was he? Well, we all knew he was going to be big. Well, the story behind that was I was at a friend's studio in Belmar, New Jersey. It was a then state-of-the-art eight-track studio where you could do real multi-tracking. So I was uh, doing a couple of my songs. And um, I was going from guitar to bass to keyboard to vibraphone to drums. And then I was doing multi-track vocals. And uh, then when I, was, I wasn't done with my session yet, somebody came into the, um, the studio, into mm -hmm. with the control area. So it didn't bother me. I was still doing my thing. And so when I was done, I said to the engineer, who I also went to college with, I said, uh, thanks, Jim. And just as I was leaving, I got a tap on my shoulder. Shortish guy, not terribly tall. said, uh, hey, I, I've got a girl group coming in in a few minutes, and their bass player not going to make it. And you fill in. I said, you got chord sheets? He said, yeah. I said, fine. Uh, if I can read the chord sheets, no problem. Now, I, from the time my group... Uh, back in uh, college was being produced by a pretty good producer in New York when I was signed our group was signed to Old Town Records mm -hmm. and uh, our producer named Bobby Lance who wrote House That Jack Built that Aretha Franklin made a hit uh, he was showing our bass player a couple of fancy bass runs well I, just by watching him I learned it and so I was doing a couple of those when I was doing my own recording for my own stuff. And this guy man, asked me to play bass. I said, sure. I didn't even think to ask him for money. Because I just like my music. So uh, I did the session for him, cut about three or four sides for him. And I threw in these bass runs that I saw being done. It's like from two years memory, but I remembered what they were. And it made me look better than I was. I wasn't really that good a bass player. Those two runs made me look, oh, wow, what are you still think? That's very fancy. So the guy tapped me on the shoulder. He said, uh, as I was leaving, after I did his session, before I left, he, I got the tap on the shoulder again. He said, I play with Bruce. He said, you know who I mean when I say Bruce, don't you? He was already a you know, local legend. We knew he was going to be big. Mm -hmm. We knew record companies were scouting him. And I said, yeah, I know who you mean. He said, we're looking for a new bass player. Uh, to audition. Sure. So I walked in. Uh, he gave me an address to go to the next day. And I turned to the owner of the studio. I said, I'm going to borrow the studio bass because I didn't own a bass. So he said, yeah, just bring it back tomorrow. So I borrowed the bass. Next day, I go to, it was near Asbury Park. Maybe, I think it was Neptune. 
I went to the house at the appointed time. Now, I was always anti-drug, uh, which was very strange because everybody thought I was, you know, smoking grass with everybody else. But no, I wasn't. Mm. So uh, I show up, the door opens, and this is years before Chichi Chong up in smoke. This huge billow of smoke comes out. I go, oh, my God. But I made a commitment that I was there. I turned my head, <gasps> took a deep breath of fresh air, and I walked in. And it wasn't until I was halfway across the living room through all the smoke that I saw Bruce. So he said to me, uh, plug in, let's jam. So I played two or three blues songs with him. And again, throwing in my runs at the appropriate times, making me look better than I actually was. But my mind was made up. I wasn't going to join this group because I didn't want to be around pot or whatever else they might have been doing but you know grass was grass was a thing at the time um the drummer his name was buzzy he said uh, would you mind waiting outside we want to talk about you I said sure but my mind was made up so about a minute later he comes outside he says bruce Diggs, do you think you're cool you're in i said to him uh no thanks and as i was turning to walk away his jaw dropped open nobody said no to bruce there's so what did my, he? There's my. Story. Did he say anything? No, no. I, I didn't turn around to look. Did you? Did you ever run into like David Bowie? So I know you mentioned him in one of your backstage. Oh, we, we just stood next to each other at uh, a, a club on Chambers Street. I forget the name of it. It was a club down there, and we were just standing next to each other. Okay. But there was there was no real interest. This is all fascinating. I feel like we just did all. Well, you know, I used to, I used to produce. I used to produce, you know, a lot of the underground uh, punk and glam rock scene. Uh, really? the I was um, producer manager for the Harlots of 42nd Street. Yeah, I listened to was, some of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just had the album released last October after 48 years. It's yeah, on that's some, how I was uh, able to listen to it. Yeah, it, it's stuff holds up. It sounds like it was yeah. recorded you know, two months ago. Refuse to be misused is a, a great track. Okay, that about does it for part one of my interview with Seth Greenkey. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank him personally for coming on. As always, you can find me at Justin Yachts. Please like, share, and subscribe, and maybe consider checking out the YouTube channel. And I will see you next time on the DMF. <laughs>